Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. In previous programs, I've made reference to Joseph Pulitzer's statements, which are emblazoned on a plaque at the Press Club in Washington, D.C., And the focus of his remarks is with reference to the responsibility of the press over these decades and scores of years and centuries informing the public has been the province of the press. And as he noted so well, that if they should abuse their authority, their responsibility, their power, that it would have grossly detrimental effects on this nation, on this republic. He was careful to refer to it as a republic, not a democracy. Correctly so. But this matter of the press, of what they choose to print, what they say, how they say it, what they refrain from saying what they choose not to print has enormous effect on and implications for the information that the masses, we great unwashing masses, (laughs) receive. Now, the situation is somewhat different today because of the Internet and because of cable channels and so forth. But the powerhouse print publications, daily newspapers, and weekend newspapers, and major media elite broadcasting giants, they've had enormous power and sway. And they have very carefully, very selectively chosen to inform the American people of their facts. And as I have commented on time and again with regard to headlines in this day and age, we invariably, invariably, always see reference to alleged crimes having been committed, even after they have been absolutely graphically displayed to have been committed, not only a matter of that this person or this group of people is alleged to have committed these crimes, alleged to have 
kidnapped this girl, slaughtered her parents, kidnapped her, raped her after she has escaped from him. But he's only alleged to have committed such and such. But not only individuals, perpetrators, but even the events themselves, that it's alleged that there was a killing. Here this person is dead, this person's been murdered, but it's alleged that they have been killed, and so forth. Just profound, bizarre perversion of truth and of facts. Because our judicial system, our justice system, has been so undermined. So perverted. And it is reflected and it is enforced by, reinforced by, the slop that we receive from the media. Joseph Pulitzer said that this condition of the media would result in the downfall of our society. And there's more to it than just the press. No, there is more to it than that. There is the intentional, persistent, pervasive, all-out effort by these power brokers behind the scenes and these social engineers these evil ones bent on the destruction of this nation who have continued to pursue their ends, their evil ends, by promoting their evil agendas. With the extremely generous assistance of various exceedingly wealthy philanthropists, foundations, corporate foundations, and big business, and of course, politicians. And then there's the matter of the corrupt clergy who have helped them. Corrupt clergy perish the thought of ministers, pastors, priests, bishops, cardinals, popes, what have you, who have assisted in the accomplishment of these ends, these evil ends. Well, their evil agendas continue to be put forth. And the sodomite agenda is a part of that, a piece of that, one tentacle of that along with the induced abortion agenda. But this matter of corrupting the people, corrupting the young, focusing on the young through public education and private education, focusing on the young, also targeting them through the media to corrupt, to undermine, to pervert the young. This has been going on for decades, and it continues. Mike Pence, vice president 
who appeared with his wife, Karen, who praised his wife, Karen, at the annual March for Life rally. The March for Life rally, which has been so (laughs) disserviced by the major media for decades and decades now, million people strong have turned out for the March for Life, and it's always made out to be, oh, mere thousands, maybe 10,000 people. And then you have the million-man mugging, and oh, the press is all over that and blowing it up and so forth, making it out to be more than it is. But the major media has always attempted to absolutely minimize and neutralize the opposition, the conscious opposition to this evil that has pervaded this nation now since Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were created. These decisions, these rulings were created by our Supreme Court, our supremely abominable Supreme Court, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not a part of, but which she wholeheartedly agreed with and has been involved in promoting such evil and has continued to confirm, reconfirm in her time on the Supreme Court. But Mike Pence and his wife Karen appeared at the March for Life rally, and he praised his wife. And he made mention of the fact that she, among the many things that she does, that she is even an art teacher at a Christian school, part-time at a Christian elementary school in Northern Virginia. And that's in addition to being a wife, a mother, an advocate for military families, so on and so forth. And that he couldn't be more proud of her, of our second lady. Well, the uber-leftist media jumped all over this and condemned him for praising his wife. That's right. Condemned him for praising his wife and for her having anything to do with this supposedly anti-sodomite Christian school. A Christian school which actually has Christian values, which actually has Christian standards, which are opposed to the sodomite agenda. Oh, how terrible, how dreadful, how discriminatory. Well, once upon a time long ago, back at the Founding of the nation, not the founding of America. There was the founding of America, which was the work of God, and which was initiated by his people, by the pilgrims, and by the Puritans. 
these forefathers who came to this nation at great risk to themselves and to their families and loved ones and suffered greatly, suffered great losses, suffered greatly, came to this nation to be free to worship God Almighty, free from persecution that was visited upon them over in Britain and England, but also because they were led by God to do this and to win America for the Lord, to create a place for the worship of God here and to bring the Word of God here. But the founders of the nation, those founding fathers, including the first president, first in war, first in peace, George Washington, his first Supreme Court Chief Justice, he selected John Jay. John Jay, and I'm not going to be quoting him, I'm going to be paraphrasing, but John Jay said that it was incumbent upon Americans, upon voting Americans, those who had the vote, it was incumbent upon them, it was their responsibility to select godly leaders. It was essential that they prefer Christians. Oh, prefer Christians? Wait a minute, that is terribly, loathsomely discriminatory. Or is it? And in a a sense, in a sense, it is discrimination in this sense. Discrimination in the true sense of the word, to discriminate is to select, to make selection, to make choices, to choose right and not wrong, to choose good and not evil, to choose life and not death, to choose God and not demons and false gods. But fascinatingly enough, our leftist leaders of this generation and the previous generation, who are such champions of this so-called right to choose, this unfettered right to choose, it's only unfettered if it is to choose evil, (laughs) not to choose good. But John Jay said it was absolutely imperative that the voters selected godly leaders and they preferred Christians to be their leaders in order that we would have godly government, that no amount of godly laws in and of themselves would result in godly governance. 
But that was John Jay, and he was a man of yesteryear. A different sort of man, not the kinds of leaders that we have today on either side of the aisle. (laughs) Anywhere out there. Mike Pence seems to be a good guy, but he's no John Jay. The United States of America has been suffering under an onslaught, an all-out onslaught. But though, though it be the case, it is still standing or kneeling, practically prostate, but it is still <laughs> afloat. How much longer is very debatable. But speaking of being barely afloat, what's next over in Britain? What's next with regard to this Brexit movement that came about prior to Donald Trump being elected? Prior to Donald Trump being selected the nominee for the Republican Party, I do believe. Well, there is a date that is (laughs) around the corner, March 29th. Talking about barely eight weeks away, not even that. And that is the date that it is scheduled for Britain to depart from the European Union. And the efforts that have been made in Britain by Theresa May, the Prime Minister, who opposed Brexit, but who was selected to be the Prime Minister to lead... (laughs) (laughs) The way the transition to this exit from the European Union by Britain. She hasn't exactly succeeded in uh, gaining sufficient support in Parliament for her particular plans and so forth. So what lies ahead? Well, they can go through something which is roughly akin to a federal government shutdown, uh, which is termed no deal, being called a doomsday scenario. And it is thought that this would trigger a recession in Britain and also perchance in the European Union. So something to be avoided. But another possibility is a second referendum to undo the democratic process of the first referendum. And these who oppose Britain leaving the European Union, who were so confident, so cocky, so arrogant 
that there was no way on earth that the British people would vote to leave the European Union. They were shocked to find (laughs) that they lost on the first referendum to the voters. Uh, The Leave campaign, 52 to 48 percent back in that 2016 referendum. So they want to have a do-over. You know, they don't like the results, so let's do it over again. Let's have a second referendum. All right. Uh, and But they've been doing everything they could from get-go to undermine it and to prevent it putting, being put into force. Theresa May rightly has stated that another referendum would do irreparable damage to the integrity of our politics. Hear, hear. That is absolutely true. But, so what is going to take place? What can the Brits look forward to? Well, there is the Brit- British opposition choice, this way, that way, the other way, <laughs> to keep Britain in the EU, one way or another, by hook or crook, you know, second referendum, or one of various other mechanisms, machinations. There's the Brexit in name only option, and and that's not the official name, but uh, it is being referred to that way, among others, also known as Norway Plus or Common Market 2.0. And if this were passed, well, Britain would continue to take its marching orders from Brussels, Belgium, and the EU. And would have no control over immigration from Europe by Islamists, by Muslims. Muslim hordes. <laughs> they would, it would just continue to be absolutely uncontrolled. And again, the matter of a second referendum, but then there's the matter of a general election. A general election to overturn the current Theresa May government, install a government that will do things exactly the way of those who want to stop Brexit at all costs. And then there are those who they just want to delay. Delay, 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 delay. And the leaders in the European Union are working based on this premise that Britain will ask for an extension of this deadline, this March 29th, and keep delaying it and keep extending it. 
lots of exciting possibilities. And there's another one about signing up to a customs union. And that one is thorny as well. It is a thorny one as well. But, uh, again, they're grasping at straws. The enemies of exiting the European Union are frantic to prevent it. And they will take anything over that. Well, I'm sure you are familiar with the powerhouse of Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel. And she has pledged to work until the last day to ensure an orderly exit of Britain from the European Union. And she has intimated that responsibility for this being done successfully does not lie only with Britain, but also with the European Union. Her actual quote is this, quote, Let me say emphatically, I will work until the last day to ensure that we have a settled solution for the UK's exit, end quote. However, she goes on to say that Britain and the European Union must remain close allies after this separation. That global challenges require it. Global challenges, including nationalist fervor, the competition from communist China. She said the following, quote, The United Kingdom is a part of Europe. We're bound together by a wonderful cooperation on all kinds of domestic security questions. The United Kingdom has to be a close partner in the future, end quote. Well, fascinatingly enough, all kinds of domestic security questions. Wouldn't that include the matter of uncontrollable immigration by Muslims, by Islamists, by Islamist terrorists throughout Europe? And on into Britain. Wouldn't that, you know, be included? Why should Britain have any confidence in being a partner to European Union in any dealings pertaining to security? But, of course, they are in this way, that way, and the other way, of course. NATO and so forth. Regardless, this is not going to be some sort of isolationism, but it's a matter of Britain being able to extricate itself from being ruled by Europe. 
which it never should have agreed to, never should have permitted. But then the individual European nations never should have agreed to that. So what's going on in Britain in anticipation of some form of solution of something happening here with regard to Brexit. Interestingly enough, there is a wholesale stockpiling, some would say hoarding, that is being engaged in by manufacturers, by companies, by businesses, in order that they may continue to do business. And it is just phenomenal. I mean, the, the largest British companies, the most famous British companies that you can think of, from Rolls-Royce to any others that come to mind, are engaging in this because they are extremely concerned about not being able to access the materials that they need in order to continue operations. And it's just phenomenal. Foodstuffs of every kind. Raw materials. (laughs) You name it. It's just extraordinary. And I think not exactly unwise. And yet, of course, we would have the exceedingly wise and wonderful leaders decrying this kind of behavior. You know, this is panic-stricken behavior to, to do this. But honestly, it would be irresponsible not to because not having the materials, the resources to continue to operate, that truly would be paralyzing to Britain. So, meanwhile, there is this other movement that Merkel referred to, this nationalist phenomena, if you will. And one of the places that you find that is in Italy. You know, Benito Mussolini's fascist regime, Italy. Former head of the Roman Empire, still the head of the Holy Roman (laughs) Empire. And there is a group there, the Eurosceptic League headed up by Matteo Salvini. And he dubs his party the anti-EU party. And he recently made a trip to Poland to try to get Poland to join him. Now, he is vying to be the next prime minister of Italy. And circumstances are so bad in Italy that they are casting about and even looking at bringing that most disgusting of individuals, Silvio Berlusconi, back. 
<laughs> in order to prevent this nationalist group from having power. Uh, it's just just something else. But again, the attempt here is to forge together a confederacy, an alliance, a coalition of nations which do not want to be in the European Union. So it's not just Britain. This is going on in Europe. And this fellow, Matteo Salvini, uh, is enjoying considerable success in Italy. So much so that, uh, for instance, his party has gained approximately 15% in recent polls. And that is since the 2018 election. Well, with regard to challenges, competition from communist China, there's the matter of Russia. But before I continue... Let me say this. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. And whatever is good, right, true in this program is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever's wrong, lacking, erring, deficient is due to me. Well, on February 1st, it was announced that the United States of America was formally suspending its participation in the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that was forged back in 1987 during the Reagan administration. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, our current Secretary of State, stated the following, quote, Russia has jeopardized the United States' security interests, and we can no longer be restricted by the treaty while Russia shamelessly violates it, end quote. But there's another concern, and that is that China, communist China, whom Ms. Merkel is concerned about, wants to take advantage of the existence of the treaty to continue to increase its own missile capabilities at the expense of the United States of America, which is hamstrung, hindered, fettered by this treaty. Well, that 1987 arms control pact was designed to eliminate and permanently forswear all nuclear and conventional ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with ranges of 500 to 5,500 kilometers. 
to permanently forswear <laughs> development and deployment use of these. Needless to say, well, perhaps it's not needless, but uh, the Russian regime under Vladimir Putin, president for life, not officially, unlike Xi Jinping in China, but unofficially, he has simply for purposes of Russian munitions and military, has ignored it. It's as if there is no treaty whatsoever. It's in name only, like that, you know, Brexit in name only. It's in name only. But (laughs) the United States continues to be restrained by it. As far as that range, the 500 to 5,500 kilometers, we're talking about approximately 310 to 3,400 or 3,400 miles per my calculations. But this INF treaty, again, it obligates us and the other signer, Russia, not to possess, produce, or flight test ground-launched missiles, including cruise missiles, with that range. Well, United States of America, under the commander-in-chief, President Donald Trump, has announced to Russia that it must eliminate its 9M729 cruise missile system in order to come back into compliance with this (laughs) defunct treaty. Defunct because we are withdrawing from it, with also (laughs) defunct because it has been just in a very dark humor way ignored by Russia this whole time. Meanwhile, China and Iran, each of them possesses over a thousand of these banned missiles, missile systems. They're not bound by the treaty. (laughs) Now, It was stated at the time, on the 1st, at the time that the U.S. announced it was going to be suspending its part in this treaty. It was also stated that the United States of America is not in a position to immediately deploy missiles. Quote, it will take us time to make decisions about what kind of capability we will deploy and test. We are some time away from a flight test 
or acquisition decision. In other words, we're not in a position to act. It's going to take a, a while to a while to build up. <laughs> so, in essence, it's as if the treaty is still in effect. Now, Andrea Thompson, she's under Secretary of State for Arms Control International Security. She said, if and when we suspend our obligations in February, our defense counterparts will move ahead with the R&D, the research and development, and the work of fielding systems that will continue to protect Americans abroad and Americans at home. That will start after February 2nd, if Russia is not compliant. So, Did this have the effect? Is this having the effect of twisting Russia's arm, so to speak? Is this having the effect of causing Russia to become compliant? It would seem not, (laughs) because February 2nd, Groundhog Day, Vladimir Putin, president, of his regime over Russia, stated, quote, the American partners have declared that they suspend their participation in the deal. We suspend it as well. Well, the U.S. of A. stated that it will withdraw. It's suspending its participation in this treaty, it will withdraw from it in six months. (laughs) In six months. So it is suspending its participation now. It will leave the pact in six months. So Russia has house money here to play with. Russia can continue to build up ever-increasing massive advantage over USA and over Europe and Britain. While the USA, even though it has suspended participation, while it remains under this arms control pact, so it suspended it, but it did not withdraw. What, what powerful leadership, what outstanding strength of conviction. And interestingly enough, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused the United States of violating this treaty and other arms deals, such as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So they go on to accuse us of having broken this one when, in fact, they are the ones that have been doing that for ever and a day. Now, the Rhine, the Rhine River, there are many wonderful, majestic, magnificent rivers in Europe, but the Rhine 
is considered by many to be Europe's most important river. And it is claimed that it is running dry. And this is purportedly because of climate change. Not climate cycles, but climate change. Something to keep an eye on (laughs) over there in Europe, too, because that certainly has impact with regard to all manner of things, because the Rhine waterway happens to be vital for transporting all manner of goods, everything from coal to food to military supplies to people. (laughs) You know, it's rather important historically. The Rhine has been, but... There was a story that I came across, which I'm extremely impressed by, which won, the writer of it, Catherine Schulz, won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing and a national magazine award for the really big one. And this is her story. It's on the risk of a devastating, enormously devastating seismic event, (laughs) so-called, in the Pacific Northwest. And this was written for New Yorker magazine. So I am not going to share the story with you, but I will touch on a couple things. As she pointed out that the San Andreas Fault, uh, the greatly anticipated big one massive earthquake that it is known is going to happen sooner or later and it's overdue now for California from San Francisco to Los Angeles Los Angeles um, that it only would be something on the order of an 8.2 to 8.4 magnitude event on the Richter scale, that it's limited to that by the length of the fault and, and what have you, and that it would be terrible, but it would be limited. Comparatively, but meanwhile, that the danger in the Pacific Northwest, in the area from Victoria and Vancouver, British Columbia, extending down to Northern California, that the risk from that potentially could reach or exceed 9.2 on the Richter scale, be one of the most massive earthquakes of all time, of all recorded time with regard to earthquakes being recorded. So 
the devastation that would be felt from that would dwarf the devastation from that of the San Andreas. Now, she didn't explicitly touch on this, but this one, which seemingly is also overdue, if it were to occur initially, if it were triggered before San Andreas' fault had had its big one, isn't there likelihood that it would trigger the San Andreas' fault as well? These are in the ring of fire that I've mentioned before, which extends from New Zealand all the way up the Asian coast, past Russia, long down the side of Alaska, and the west coast of Canada, Yukon and British Columbia, and then on down the United States, Baja, Mexico, Central America, South America, down to Chile and uh, tip of Argentina. The Ring of Fire, where the vast majority of earthquakes and of the greatest earthquakes or worst earthquakes, the most devastating earthquakes, are centered. And the devastation is not just from the earthquakes, but from tsunamis. That is terrible as the devastation from the earthquakes, that the devastation wrought by the tsunamis would dwarf that. The death toll from the tsunamis is ever so much greater than from the earthquakes themselves. This expected big one from the San Andreas Fault It is thought that it would only be 6% as powerful as what struck Japan that resulted in the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima back in 2011. Only 6% as powerful as that. It's hard to imagine, (laughs) but that's the difference we're talking about here between, again, what is thought to be the upper limit of the devastation from the San Andreas Fault big one and this in the Northwest. This in Cascadia. It's a... To say it's a uh, disaster waiting to happen is such an understatement. But it's something that is coming. And in fact, in uh, what is listed as being the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 7, 
in the Bible. It states that there will be earthquakes in diverse places, among other things, before the end, not at the end (laughs) of this lifetime, but before the end. There will be great earthquakes in diverse places. It's just, this is a taste of coming attractions, of very devastating coming attractions. Nuclear attack could set these things off as well. And it's not to be looked forward to, but there must be recognition of it and preparation to survive it, to survive the unsurvivable. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. Thank you.